I'm Joshua Friedman, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey there, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? Pretty well. How about yourself? I'm, I'm doing great. We're in the same room. Check it out. Amazing. Got it. it. It's been a while. It has. It's, it's, it's been a minute, but you know, you're, you're usually in Portland and, uh, you know, post pandemic, uh, we do most of these on zoom. Whereas if you go listen to any of the ones we did before the pandemic, a hundred percent of them were done in person. No, that's not true. Almost. QN Tran was the only one that we did remotely before the pandemic. And there was like, a, you wouldn't be able to tell though. Cause she has like a professional you yeah, know, recording yeah. studio in her place. She, yeah, yeah, she was super slick and super well set up. And it was so long ago that I think we used Skype. Oh, that could be. It predated <laughs> Zoom. So weird. Hey, Ben, who is on the show today? That's a fine question, and I don't remember. <laughs> it's Josh Friedman. Josh Friedman, I don't expect you to remember because I did the interview. Yeah. And uh, he's an entrepreneur and a assistant director and really interesting guy. We have a conversation that is uh, a little bit atypical for the podcast, and we get into a lot of interesting stuff about sort of starting out and making your way in the industry and being a production assistant and stuff like that. He has got a very interesting app, and I don't want to give it all away, but it's worth checking out. It's worth uh, listening to this interview. Uh, I'm, I think. I'm very excited about any apps as a filmmaker that I can uh, I can use to uh, to speed things up and uh, get my workflow better and uh, be more efficient. Well, this is really to try use to help. Use less paper. Even just use less paper. I'm, uh, I'm fine with that. Well, it's mostly for uh, above-the-line people looking to hire below-the-line people and below-the-line people looking to get hired. So that that's really what the app is all about. So it's, it seems pretty interesting. I, I, I can't wait to get into it. Nice. Yeah. And now... Close focus. So, uh, Ben, what is our close focus today? What, what do we what do we got to talk about? Well, I think that uh, our close focus today is Renaissance, a film by Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Beyonce. Uh, I've I've heard of her. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. She's got a real she's got a real future. I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, things might work out for her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she is following the trail blazed just a couple months ago by Taylor Swift mm. with the Eros tour, and it has led her to the number one movie in the country right now. And I don't mean to damn her with faint praise, but like the weekend after Thanksgiving is usually not a big banner weekend for box office. Mm. Uh, she made $21 million, but it's being distributed kind of in the same way. AMC Theaters is distributing it at other theaters, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting. And every time we talked about Taylor Swift, at one point or another, we brought up like another artist like Beyonce could do this. And of course, it was in the works already, but I think we're we're going to see even more concert tours and and i will go out on a limb and say you know like they released renaissance on 2500 screens wow which is that's a that's a pretty major release that's a wide release yeah it's a wide release for a concert movie they're doing the same kind of rules they did for taylor swift which is to say uh they're encouraging people to take selfies to stand up to sing along like all the things you're not supposed to do in a movie theater mm-hmm. uh these concert movies are kind of encouraging you to basically do what you would do at Break a concert the rules. yeah at a concert yeah you know, they've been trying to like, I remember maybe 15 years ago, Danny Boyle did a live. It was from, I think, the Royal Shakespeare Theater, but he did Frankenstein and Alicia, my wife, went to see it and she loved it. And like you'll hear about operas and stuff like that. But it's like, no, this is what this is what's going to get people to go go to a movie theater is go see a band that you love. Go see a musical act that you love. And, you know, I'd love to see run the jewels or Hmm. the flaming lips or you know i mean these are probably bands that appeal more to people my age you know rage against the machine but you know like you're not going to get a 2500 screen release probably for rage against the machine although maybe you would but you know even if you had a 500 screen release or a 300 screen release you probably make a good chunk of change off of it by getting all the fans of those bands to come out and check these the, the the concerts out i got a question for you hamilton broadway play gets released by all measures i thought it was a it was a big hit it was released directly to streaming yeah. but i think it was really a linchpin for disney plus for their for their launch 
I have not seen a bunch of Broadway musicals get the same sort of treatment. Do you think that that won't happen by the very nature of Broadway musicals? Is I, think a- it, I think it could happen. I mean, like, you know, I didn't see Hamilton on the stage. Um, and I, like a lot of people, saw it when it came on Disney+. Plus, and I think that maybe following this model... I could see something like that or Book of Mormon or whatever, you know, like a big Broadway musical. This is probably a really good way to present it mm. and, and to bring it out to a much wider audience. But, you know, because going to a Broadway play, even if you're already there, is crazy expensive. For sure. Going to a movie, I mean, I, I don't think the Beyonce one is priced differently, but maybe I'm wrong. But Taylor Swift, all the tickets were nine, $19.89. <laughs> Because uh, that's, uh, I think that's the year she was born, but also like she has an album called 1989, I think. Yes. Please, please yeah. don't at me, everyone who, like, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not enough of a Taylor Swift person to really know. <laughs> well, uh, here's the thing. It's definitely something to watch. It's definitely a possible renaissance for theaters, at least. Well played. I, I know, I was going to say. A uh, renaissance. It, I mean, theater owners should be looking at Beyonce as a potential new revenue stream, a new for renaissance for their their business, but it will really depend, I think, on how well Beyonce does and the um, the next ones that that follow. Who knows? Maybe a band will get back together, come out of retirement, do some sort of special concert, do a thing. I don't know. I don't see Peter Maybe Frampton tr- bringing them all in. <laughs> well, like but, Rolling Stones are supposedly yeah. about to put out a new album, and I mean, I guess the question is, are there? I mean, Rolling Stones are a classic and almost as old as the Beatles. Is their core audience, who is mostly older than us, yeah, gonna go to a movie like my? You couldn't put a gun to my dad's head and make him go to a movie theater. No, I think it's gonna be pop. It's it's gonna be pop <laughs> artists yeah, for the most it, part. It'd be somebody yeah. like I mean, like if you heard that Drake was doing this next, you'd be like, yeah, of course. Mm. I I don't know. Like I'm excited that people are going to see it in the theater. That it's bringing people back to the theater. I'm assuming that there will be some retention. Some people will be like, hey, now that I'm in this movie theater, I kind of like this experience. Maybe I'll go see. You know, what, whatever, whatever's playing in theaters right now. I, I will say that the Taylor Swift movie was not my cup of tea, but I did go to it. I took my kids to it and, uh, they it, like it. Not really. Yeah. <laughs> one of them did. One of them thought it was fine. Their friend who's the biggest Swifty ever loved it, but it was quite the experience to see the people, to see, you know, people getting up and dance and, you know, swaying and doing all kinds of stuff. And it was, uh, well, let me ask you, yeah. is, is, is it was, your, your, it was on IMAX. Is your apathy towards it just like, you're not the core audience for this that, music. That's exactly right. Uh, I, let me tell you, from an anthropological standpoint, being there in the theater, it was fascinating. Yeah. It was also three hours, but it was Oof, fascinating. I didn't realize it was three it's hours. It's really, really long. But anthropological standpoint, it was very interesting being there. It definitely felt like sort of history in the making, yeah. but I would probably much rather go see Green Day. I'd probably much rather go see some, someone so, else. Somebody there. who was more age appropriate for us. But I think that if this can of worms gets open properly, you know, because like uh, if you go to any concert at like a major venue. So like, let's say you go see something at the Hollywood Bowl or the Greek theater oh, out here. They are filming it multi-camera and they're showing it on the on the Jumbotron, whatever it's called, the big screen. Because you can't see them if, unless you spent $12,000, $1,200. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so they basically have a version of this. So, you know, you want to appeal to people our age, like, uh, you know, take the Pixies at the, their Coachella oh, reunion yeah. and release it in theaters. I would, I was there when that happened and it was a long time ago. It was almost 20 years ago, but I would go back and I would love to re-experience something like that. There, there are so many bands out there that have enormous followings. And I almost wonder if you could do sort of a musical festival. What if you did a, Co- a virtual Coachella and you made it a multi-day event and you could kind of experience experience each screen at each stage at Coachella. Like, I, I just think that there's opportunities for this if somebody really wanted to be creative. I, I think that there is money to be made if someone really wants to, if someone really wants to invest in this, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if all kinds of events get the theatrical experience. I wouldn't be surprised if there is a burning man docu oh my God. event type of thing because you know that's now that's we're a, just giving it away man I, someone's gonna steal these ideas you and know make, what i'm not doing dollars. it i'm not the one who's gonna come who's gonna that's go true. Do i'm that, not so. i'm not gonna go film i mean friggin burning man yeah but you know we know people who would or have who have done that bill totolo yeah. went and did a 3d documentary out there years ago i have no idea what happened with it but yeah he he did a whole thing and with you know two giant 3d cameras anyway wow. we should probably move on to our interview with josh friedman here we go The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Joshua A. Friedman, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. Very excited to be here. I've been listening for a very long time. 
Now, before I dive into our conversation here, I should mention that, to my knowledge, we're not related. So even though our last names are the same, spelt the same, uh, I, I, I don't, you know, this isn't nepotism here uh, taking place. I didn't like, hey, my, my, my cousin Josh has got, you know, it's time for having him on the show. Uh, you, you and I are not, not related to our knowledge, but, uh, but I, I really yes. enjoyed our previous conversation and really wanted to have you on the show. Uh, I don't know if I told you, but there's four or five Joshua Friedmans in the film industry. Creators, ADs, performers, like we all know each other. <laughs> you know, I, I think that I think that's great. And also not really surprising because it turns out Friedman, fairly common last name. And uh, and I do run into a number of Friedmans throughout my lifetime that spelt the same way and and just absolutely no relation. But Josh, I want to start off by kind of getting your story. So tell me, I know you spent a long time working as a production assistant and then wrote the book mm-hmm. on it. Tell me about getting into being a PA for the first time. How did you get into this industry? So it actually starts back in high school. I studied theater. I was a stage manager. My guidance counselor was married to the producer of Law & Order Criminal Intent. So my spring break, when everybody else was going to Palm Springs or up to uh, the Carolinas, I went straight up to New York and I spent a week shadowing a DGA trainee, fell in love with everything film. And so flash forward, I graduated from college in 2005, moved straight to New York, called the guy up. I said, hey, man, I'm here. I'm ready to work. Very excited. He goes, great. Good luck. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so so that was it. And, you know, you thought you had the thing. And so I, I was bartending nights for money and I was doing Craigslist jobs and music videos, student films, working for free. And I, I literally did this for a year. And then I called up uh, the producer, John Roman, and I said, hey, this is what I've been doing. I've been looking to break into the union world. Do you have anybody I can talk to or guidance? And that approach led him to introduce me to Gary Rake, who's the key second on Criminal Intent Season 7. And Gary calls me and says, hey, so we got this walkie position opening up. Uh, John says, you might be good for it. Do you want it? I said, I don't know what that is, but yeah. And so that, that was how I got my start. And so Monday through Friday on Law & Order. And as additional PAs would come in, so we had a staff that was there Monday through Friday, and then additional PAs as needed. Like if we're shooting at Times Square, there's 10 to 15 extra production assistants. And I would ask them, what are you working on? And so I got on Hancock and Pelham 123, and I would work Monday through Friday on the show and weekends picking up whatever was in town. It's very uh, industrious of you to uh, immediately start networking that like that. I, I will tell you that a lot of people who I first meet who get into this industry, who get their first break, whatever it is, they don't look at the other people on the crew as their assets. It's certainly not the other people doing their same job. They seem to almost look at them like competition. And you didn't have that attitude at all. You came in as like, hey, oh, no. these people these people might be able to help me. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of, you know, competition versus camaraderie on, you know, on finding your next gig? Absolutely. Um, I, I totally see the competition aspect. And as you go up the ladder, it's it gets harder not to compete, especially with your friends. So as a PA, there's there's five staff members. And then the additionals, there's so many to pull from. You're competing for space, but there's enough to go around. And then as an assistant director, once you make that jump, there's only three of us on set. And maybe a few additionals if you need more, have big uh, background days or big stunt days. Um, but now it gets really competitive. And the way that I found to get ahead and keep myself employed is to not look at it as a competition, but to look at it as a collaboration. So this is my team, whether it's the PAs or whether it's the AD team. And in my world, it's one and the same. Um, So as an AD, I do hire my PAs. And so I support them and that's my family. But that collaborative aspect is really what's allowed me to find the next job because people want to work with someone who's going to support them. For sure. And I always say that you never know where your next job is going to come from. And uh, I have certainly been recommended by many production assistants in the past when I was a freelance cameraman. Uh, like I would be surprised. So I'd hear from, from people who say like, hey, I know someone who's looking for an operator an AC, a DP and would refer me to a job. And when I would get that job, you better believe I would felt extremely loyal to those people who referred me oh, yeah. in the first place. Uh, I, I assume it's it's similar for you that that you know you want to help and lift up the people who are looking to lift you up and trying to you know, you know shine so. your star a little bit. Yeah. And in the same means, if someone reaches out and I can't take the job, like you were saying, I'll I'll recommend a friend. So they're not competition, but now they're a resource. 
and I can add value to another producer of production, which will, again, in the long run, make us look better. And so they'll still call, are you available? If not, do you have another recommendation? We like the last one. I think that one of the most overlooked uh, sort of aspects of having friends in the industry who do the same sort of thing that you do is that for whatever reason, you may have to replace yourself at some point. You may have to miss mm-hmm. a day of work, and it sure is better to give it to someone you know and trust than a complete stranger, or, you know, a rando out there. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the value of having that trusted network and, you know, who you let into that and how do you keep them there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's very, very few people in my network. Um, I'll be honest. I know over a thousand people in the production industry and then some, but the people that I'll actually pick up the phone to call when I get a job is one hand. But one thing that I learned very early on, and it, it happened in the indie world actually, was I can't work with my friends. I can work with professionals who become my friends, but I can't work with friends who are trying to be professional. Um, and so I say that because the two assistant directors that I hire the most are not people that I ever worked with coming up or as an assistant director until I needed to bring them in. So we never had that personal relationship outside. It was always on set. Here's what we do. And so this, this guy, Kyle Burstein, who is a second second and Nikki Real, who is also a second second and a key second. They're always my first two calls. Anytime I get a job. And if they're not available, then I'll start to ask around. But I know that if I pick up the phone, KB, it's his nickname, is going to set background, and I'm not going to have to worry about it. And with Nikki, she and I did the movie Tesla together. So I was the key second, she was the second second. And anytime I went to do something, it would either be in process or the plan was created and it just had to be approved. And so this worked in both directions. I will take her on any job, anytime. Yeah. And you know the quality of their work and they know uh, you know that they've got your back. And uh, I assume, too, that they're also probably reciprocating when when they've got an opportunity. They're probably looking to help you as well. Very much so. So if they get a call to first AD something and they can't take it, they'll reach out to me. And so I'll take it and bring them on. All right. Let me, let me ask you this, because I think that we have a lot of listeners who want to get into the industry and PA is the sort of first stepping stone for a, a lot of folks. And I, I know yeah. that certain people out there will say, oh, I just woke up one day and I said, I'm doing this and I'm just doing this. But the reality is for a lot of people who don't necessarily know what all the jobs are and don't necessarily know what sort of disciplines are involved, production assistant is sort of how you get your foot in the door. And then you get to be around a lot of different departments to understand what you gravitate to what what is actually the the type of thing that that you know makes your socks go up and down it makes you know it gives you some sort of joy you know in the day so let me ask you this what qualities make for an excellent production assistant listen i i will always lead with listen more often than not everybody is so excited to to be the hero to be the problem solver to to speak up and get the attention but they don't hear everything that's being asked. So this might be a two-part question, and they're only answering the first part without hearing the second part, which is actually more important. Mm. What else uh, What else would, makes for a good production assistant getting into the industry for um, the first time? Very first piece of advice I got from a key PA, you earn your money with your legs and your lungs. So walk fast and speak with intention. Um, and it's true. You have to be on the balls of your feet, but grounded simultaneously. So you can stop what's coming, but you can move if something's needed. Um, So PAs that are agile, that pay attention, that have situational awareness and know when it's time to be still and when it's time to act, that's what I look for in people starting out. And those are the people that I will gravitate into my circle deeper and deeper. Um, Another thing that I learned was you look at the set as a bullseye. And each circle in that bullseye is a different layer. So at the very center, we've got the camera and the actual set itself. And as we go out further and further, it's the AD's realm, it's the staff production assistant realm, and then the additional PAs. So as you're on those outer circles, you start to learn all the other things about all the other departments like we're talking about. Now, a lot of people these days, at least a lot of people I've been meeting will call themselves a filmmaker. And would you say that the skills of being an excellent PA are the same skills for being an excellent filmmaker? I I don't know how to properly answer that. 
um, I, I just got back from a, a film expo in Albuquerque and somebody asked me, what do you do? Are you a filmmaker? And I really had to think about it because in my mind, I'm not a filmmaker. I'm, I'm an assistant director. I'm a producer. I'm a mentor or an educator, but never once have I thought of myself as a filmmaker because it's so all encompassing. If as a crew member or as a creative, this is your story, this is your vision, then then I think in that situation that you could consider yourself a filmmaker. But on the crew side, everything that we do, I, I think we're specialists and that's what makes the product that we create so special. Uh, I, I'd agree with that. I, I, I co-sign on that. I think that definitely when people work on a crew, they, they do specialize. They do have unique skill sets and they've honed that skill set so that they're very, very good in any sort of situation. And I think the term filmmaker does sound like very much a generalist term. Although I've also met people who say that, hey, everyone who's in that credit list are all filmmakers are all part of the whole process. So I know it's just semantics here we're getting into, but how important or unimportant is like the term filmmaker then for for people out there? Do do production assistants out there want to be filmmakers because they're working on maybe a big budget Hollywood, you know, sort of production? Or is this all just, you know, mental masturbation? What is the uh, what is the importance or unimportance of of the terminology here to classify people, put them in boxes to understand what it is that they do for a living. Yeah. I would say that it comes down to that individual. Like if if that person making the product is again all encompassing, like a production assistant who makes a short film and brings it to a festival. Yes, they're they're a filmmaker at that point. They weren't the A D. They went out and they brought in the crew and they found the story and they did all the things that we consider filmmaking. And so at that point, I would say, yeah. But outside of that, for most of us, the the perspective on set is that this is a job and we're doing that job and then going home to our families. And the people that are filmmakers are the people that are standing on the red carpets or that are going to these events or that are speaking on panels and educating and sharing their journey and experience. I would consider them filmmakers because they're encompassing all of that. Um, so I guess I just kind of lumped myself into that by accident or on purpose. <laughs> so if I'm on a panel, then at that point, yes, I'm a filmmaker. Um, I, I have produced films in the past, so mm-hmm. they qualifies according to my definition. So uh, by that same definition, if you're making, you know, uh, videos for Instagram, are you also a filmmaker? Is that also part of the same discipline or is it is it totally different worlds? I that's where I think we really get into the semantics. Um, they're, they're creators. They're, mm. There's so many other terms. I wouldn't call them filmmakers per se, unless what they're making is akin to a film. Mm. Got it. All right. Well, I, I bring all this up because like, uh, I mean, you wrote the book on being a production assistant and stuff. And it's I, and a great I, I thing allude- to say in an interview. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. You, I mean, you, you, you <laughs> wrote a, a popular book, uh, getting it done, the ultimate production assistance guide. You did this, you know, Actually, quite a while ago, though, now, too. T- tell me about yeah. uh, sitting down, writing a book, getting it published, putting it out into the world. What was what was the inspiration for that? Um, I, I wish I could say that it was to help everybody and to do the thing. But the truth is, um, I'm blessed with a gift of communication and being able to clearly state things. And I got tired of repeating myself. So, again, this was back on Law & Order. I was 22 years old. This was 2000 six, seven, when it got started. And people kept coming by and asking me the same questions over and over again. What's a lockup? What's a stand-in? What's a, a marking rehearsal? And I just, I couldn't give the same answers week after week. And so I just started writing all the basics down. And I figured I will give everybody this 15 page PDF. It was a Word doc. And I would sit in holding on Law & Order at Chelsea Piers and just literally in between scenes while waiting for them to call the extras, type up this little manual that I was going to hand to people. And while I was typing it, one of the assistants to a director, not an assistant director, sure, uh, was looking over my shoulder and goes, you're going to publish that? And again, 22, I didn't know any publishers or where to even turn at that point. And so they recommended Michael Weesey Productions, who had done Save the Cat and Film Production Management 101. And so I sent them an email. You have no PA books in your catalog. Would you be interested? They said, send us a sample. So I sent them two chapters and within two weeks they sent me a contract. Um, So I had a hundred pages written and I turned that into the publishers and they said, great, where's the other half of the book? (laughs) (laughs) So apparently a book is 200 pages tight. 
Um, so it started, it was just the people, the jobs, the, uh, the process. And then the other 200 pages I actually filled out with all the other information, uh, call sheets, walkie lingo, all of the additional information that we need that nobody realizes until you actually get to set and you hear that thing and go, oh, what? Yeah, that, I, I think that that is a real stumbling block for a lot of people is being able to roll with the punches, so to speak, on set when people start using terminology that as someone who's you know fresh off the boat, they've never heard before and they've got to now decipher. There is so much lingo, so much slang, so many acronyms that uh, I, I'm sure you could fill a chapter of your book just on all kinds of stuff. And and every every department has some of their own too that, that you know, they don't communicate with each other. I think it's really funny when uh, camera people get together because they do nothing but speak in like these acronyms and numbers and stuff. And when you're, when you're talking about filters and filtration, of, so of course, What do you too. mean REC 409? <laughs> 709, but yes, you know, exactly. See, see, Not- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, in the era of film, it was always about the 85, the 85, you know, or taking in the 85 ND3 or any of the other sort of, you know, things that were like, what does that number mean to anyone? And it could be the 85 Actually, in front of the 85. And yeah, exactly. That, that's that's something that's really interesting that I learned. Um, the languages that we all speak and grip is different than camera and producers different than director and actors different than AD. And like, you're literally speaking 20 different different languages on set. I, I remember there, uh, I was a production assistant the first time I ever heard the term bullprick, which was like, uh, that came from the, the grip department. I had no idea what they were talking about. And I was like, these people are asking for a bullprick. What the, what the, what the, what is this? And then, uh, the first time ever, uh, I remember being in sound and hearing sound talk about butt plugs. And I was like, mm-hmm. holy crap. What? Yes. That, then, then you discover what the, uh, well, you know, what all these terms actually mean. And I, I got to say that I think that there is a little bit of, giddiness that almost happens with your lingo becoming then it, it, it sounds like glorified, you know, prepubescent uh, sort of teenager slang or like baby talk the way that how so many things are just kind of like blurred together, but everyone's speaking the same language. And if you've spent any time on set, all of this stuff just sort of, you know, starts to then resonate in the back of your mind. You're like, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about. It is another well, language. It's not yeah. English, but it is another language for sure. <laughs> And the, there's a code that we used to do on the walkies uh, in New York. So early days when you'd want to go to another walkie channel, oh, sure. instead of saying go to two, we would say turtle doves. And two turtle doves, that person would go to two, um, except everybody caught on. So we knew they were following. Mm. So once you got to two, you go monkeys for 12 monkeys <laughs> and everybody switches to 12. And now it's a private conversation. <laughs> like that was a New York code maybe five, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and for, for our listeners who have never heard walkie speak for, I need to relieve myself and go to the restroom. Would you, would you like to share with everyone? Cause that's not considered necessarily polite to say over the, over the radio, but everyone knows the terminology. So, uh, you want to tell, you want to tell our listeners what, um, who, who don't know what these terms are, what, uh, what do you say when you have to, uh, step off set to go to the bathroom? Yeah. Yeah. So step one, if you got to take a pee, you go 10, one, why? Because it takes about 100 seconds. If you got to go 10-2, you're going to be sitting, and that's going to be about 200 seconds. Uh, 10-C is if you need to step out for a cigarette, and if you don't want to use your walkie, just go like this. Yeah, that's that's the ringing it out. Yes, Josh, I appreciate you doing that. You saved me then having to, to do this. I'm sure that you've probably told uh, one or two production assistants on their first day what they needed to say if they had to uh, you know, be unavailable for a few moments. Oh, completely. It's okay to do it. Just communicate. (laughs) That's exactly right. It's like, you know, you know, this isn't uh, this isn't prison here. You you get the ability to, uh, you know, uh, relieve yourself when you need to. But you got to let someone know that you're that you're unavailable. Uh, All right. So so, Josh, you've recently uh, well and by recently i think it's only been in work now for the last four years started a company Mm -hmm. called crew me up let's talk a little bit about uh, about this this is really interesting to me because i'm not hearing other people doing what you are doing or taking the initiative to go down this path so tell me where the brainstorm tell me first of all tell me what is crew me up and where did where did the idea for this come from yeah uh so crew me up is a mobile app and it's a labor management platform and a community resource. So that's, that's how the underlying system and technology work. And then packaged into that is a social aspect and groups and community. So 
we talked about that journey of PA to assistant director. Um, for me as an assistant director, I, I was working on all these union shows and the environment back when I was coming up was very toxic. And so I, I had Wait, my Wait, has it changed? <laughs> Sorry. You know, it has. It really has. Like, it's, it's definitely changed a lot. But back when, uh, when I was starting out years ago, it, it was very damaging. And so I, I went from the union world to the indie world and took those AD skills there. And that led to me getting caught. Um, one of those jobs flipped. It was non-union with union crew. The union got wind of it. And so they made the job flip to union. And so that's how I got in trouble. And I will never, ever do that again. But so it led me to producing because I couldn't AD those non-union things. And so one of my first movies was shot in Corsicana, Texas with uh, with David Spade and James Earl Jones. And, uh, and it's called Warning Shot. So this movie, actually good for this podcast, our DP was lovely. Uh, 135 millimeter and 185 millimeter lens on 40 to 60 feet of track and the dolly almost every shot. Wow. Um, a lot of the supporting coverage on B camera, but, but that was the entire movie. And so we're on a scout and the DP and then the uh, gaffer are talking. And all of a sudden the gaffer just starts cussing and screaming and going, I'm not going to do this. And so at that point, toxic environment, I have a zero tolerance policy as a producer. And so I sent that person packing back to New York and now I'm in Corsicana, Texas, six hours from the nearest slider, let alone a qualified gaffer. And I checked Mandy, I checked Staff Me Up, I checked Craigslist, nothing. We ended up flying in a friend from New York. And that was really where Crew Me Up came from. So I'm in a location where I don't know what resources are available, whether that's people, whether that's rentals or services. That was problem number one. And then I came back to New York after that job and... I've got over a thousand people in my phone, but it took 60 phone calls to find six people that were actually available. And so that was kind of the birth of Crew Me Up. I turned to my producing partners and said, we got to solve this. And so this was 2016, 2017, completely by myself, came up with a scope, found a little money, um, built a product that never worked, looked okay, but never actually worked. And, uh, and then I met my co-founder of Voravong in 2019. He introduced me to some tech guys. We raised some friends and family money. And so in January of 2020, we launched the first version of Crew Me Up, which was actually similar to Staff Me Up. And it was a gig posting place. It didn't really have the community, but you could put your availability in the calendar and users could have a profile that hosts their resume, their website, their IMDb link, and everything that I needed to know to hire someone was right there on the profile. So that was how it was created. And then flash forward... We launched January of 2020. The pandemic hit us March of 2020. Perfect timing. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Just in time um, for an entire industry shutdown. So. <laughs> oh, it was lovely. It was actually, for me, it was Friday the 13th. Wow. Uh, I was on set. It was a, uh, an HBO show called Love Life. And uh, I got Anna Kendrick through hair and makeup. She's dressed. She's sitting in her trailer. And I get a call from, uh, from my first AD, Eric Yellen, saying... So leave Anna in there. Go tell the uh, department heads, leave the gear on the truck. We're going to have a uh, company meeting. And company meeting, studio came out, producers came out. Sorry, friends, this is an emergency. We're all going home. We'll call you with more information. And I have never seen a company wrap that fast. Like wow. gear returned to the house in less than 24 hours. Wow. Okay, so uh, so you launch at one of the worst possible times you could be launching, uh, uh-huh. but uh, I have to imagine that that gave you some time to really tool into your app, tool into the the business model, tool into all of this to make it a, the best it could be because you know it certainly hasn't gone away, and it seems like you're getting some traction now too. People are actually using the app. So talk mm-hmm. a little bit about uh, you know what has happened since that time, since being you know since yeah. the shutdown. Yeah. So we, we really started talking to the different communities. And what we found was that um, there's this word in business, fragmented, that they love as a buzzword. But that's really what this industry is. It's, it's a fragmented community. And whether that's by department or by location or by I do features and I do commercials, we're, we're very much separate. And at the same time, we cross all of those lines. And so we started talking to groups like Women of Color Unite and Latino Filmmakers Network. 
and really finding that all these communities were trying to find each other, but didn't know where to look. And so we really refocused the 2.0, which we launched uh, July of this past year, as a labor management software instead of a gig posting service and a place for users to find communities and communities to find users. So we've got about 15, 20 different groups from Beyond Film School and the Made in New York training programs to, like I mentioned, Latino Filmmakers Network um, and vendors. So we work with uh, camera ambassadors out in Chicago. And if you need rentals or you need their recommendations, you can find those in the Crew Me Up group. That sounds really cool. And since relaunching, you're getting some buzz. People are talking about it. Can you say, can you say how many users are, are, are how many yeah. downloads you've had yeah. from, uh, for people so, checking this out yet? Yeah. It's interesting to describe like the journey that we've had with this. Mm -hmm. So from January to March of 2020, when we first launched the 1.0, we had zero to 500. From 2020 to the 2.0, we went from 500 to 5,000. And because we went to 5,000 during a pandemic, we made an internal decision that we want to completely restart with filmmakers that are still active, that are still involved in the industry. And so we dumped every single user that we had and started completely fresh back in July. So we're back up to about 2,500 since then. Uh, the work is intermittent right now, but it's all about finding the users and being in that place so that when the work does come back, January is my estimate, uh, <laughs> then, then you'll be able to be found. You know, it's not about applying to jobs. It's about getting direct offers and, the thing about the system that we built is it's built to act the way that we do. So we don't put up posts. We don't make big calls for things. We search our phones, our Rolodex, our email banks, and those are the people that we reach out to. And this is across which sort of uh, categories of crew? We're talking uh, specifically below the line, above the line. How does it break down? So it's a mix of both. We draw the line at acting and creative positions that require a subjective decision. But anything below the line from post-production to the production office, we serve, I think it's 200 different positions right now. And if it's missing, just send us an email at info at crewmeup.com and we'll add it. Um, so as new departments, new technology is developed, we'll be adding things to the app. But really, we're here to serve everybody below the line. And then above the line, it's producers, it's directors, it's writers, uh, DPs from time to time, depending on how you want to categorize that. Yeah. So do you have any, uh, I mean, I know you you had your your own impetus moment when you're working on that that show in the middle of nowhere where you, you needed to hire someone. But have yeah. you been hearing back from users who are doing exactly what was intended for this app? What What's the feedback been like? Yeah, short films, uh, smaller commercials, things that are still going have definitely been calling us and going, yeah, I need it. Or we, we do a lot of reach outs. So I'll, I'll be honest, our, our biggest failing is marketing. The mm. biggest thing we hear when we talk to people is, oh my God, I need this, but I've never heard of you. Or where, where can I find you? Because we haven't seen this. And so that's, that's a lot of what our efforts are going to be over the next two months into the new year to really get the word out about the product and build out the community as much as possible so that when the work comes back, like we said, there's resources available and that means people like us, like I'm still a working filmmaker. Oh, I yeah. called myself a filmmaker. <laughs> you, you, you sure did. I'll, I'll hold you to that. Um, so, so Josh, look, I, I would ask you, you know, what's next for the app, but it's, it, I feel like I'm getting you here, like right at the very beginning of this and that, you know, well, you guys I can are you're... totally tell you. <laughs> oh yeah. What, okay. Well then tell me what, what's, what's uh, next. Three new features that we're okay. developing in the next six months. Uh, one is reporting. So we'll be releasing labor reports for each project. You'll be able to break it down by time, by department or, overall and you can see what staff members are coming in on what days and what additionals are coming in on what days so we're aiming to support production managers and accountants with that feature we're also working on diversity reports that we're hoping we'll be able to support tax incentives and then finally a social feed so each of our users will actually be able to share what they're doing will actually be able to ask questions in a safe film-friendly environment and that also applies to the groups so 
if Camera Ambassadors has a sale or if one of our partners has a class they want to offer, there's ways for them to engage the community now. Gotcha. And I assume that everyone there has a profile which they can use to, to market themselves in some way as well, too, so that they have the ability to uh, try to make themselves stand out. Or how, how does, how, how, how well, does the, the profiles work? Here's the trick to making yourself stand out. You have to be there. So once you create your profile, you can choose two different skills. So if you're a DP and a gaffer, you can put both of those on your profile. You, uh, you can link your website again, for makeup artists or gaffers, and then you can link your IMDb page. So all of that access is directly on the profile as well as a seven-day calendar that'll share your immediate availability if somebody needs you. Hired directly through, or you can message people from their profiles. So if you have a question, you can ask them before you make them an offer. Is, is there messaging built into that, that app or are you going out? Yep. Okay. And so notification too, so you can, you know, everything comes through the app. Nice. Correct. Yeah. Uh, well, in terms system. So, Josh, this has all been really interesting uh, for me. And I, I love talking about companies who that are getting into looking to improve the way that work is currently being done, especially since the industry is so analog. A lot of the way that things are done today are still 19th century. And even though we've had a lot of updates over the years, it's still feels very pre-web world. It feels like it's very analog. It's phone calls, it's relationships, it's, it's, it's everything else. And there's a, a really good reason for that. Um, but what is the direction of your company? What, you know, where do you want to see this thing going? How do you want to continue to have an influence on the industry and, and make a, a change for the better? So we, we spent the past few years focusing a lot on technology and what we realized over that time is that my personal platform and what led to that technology is education and strong foundations in production. So now that we spent all that time, we've built a product, we're actually going to spend 2024 going back to those roots. And so we've got workforce development programs in upstate New York where we're doing a crash course, people, paperwork, process, and that's just week one. Week two is prep of a short film. Week three, they shoot it. And then they spend nine weeks going over what they just did with individual department heads to really hone in with that experience physically under their belt. So I think from there, the, uh, the next year is going to be really about building the community and teaching people so that when they do get the opportunities that the app is going to offer, they're ready for them and they're ready for them to succeed. I, I think that sounds brilliant. Uh, amazing. Um, Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really glad that we had uh, a chance to talk about this. Where can people track you down if they want to connect with you? They want to get into the app. They want to figure this uh, stuff out. Do you do social media? How, how you know, you go, yeah. go to the, the Google Play Store? Tell me how the people connect with you. So if to get involved with Crew Me Up, uh, crewmeup.com or on Instagram at crewmeup. Um, download the app, check out our socials. Um, if you want to get in touch with me. <laughs> so this is our company mascot. This is Kruby, um, also what we call our users. And uh, and so at Kruby underscore Rex is how you can DM me on Instagram specifically. Nice. Josh, that, that was great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I really can't wait to see what happens next. Same. Thank you. All right. So that was Josh Friedman. Hey, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great chatting with you and I can't wait to get into your app and see what it's all about. And uh, you'll have to come back on at some point and give us an update. Very cool. And now short ends. So Ben, uh, I see you staring at your phone, but you, uh, you know what time it is now? It's time for short ends. And that is why I was staring at my phone because I want to make sure I get the name right. All right. But yeah, I'll jump into my short end, which is the number three movie in the country. So it's only two behind Renaissance. Oh, wow. Yeah. It is called Godzilla Minus One. And it is, I think, the biggest opening for a foreign language film in U.S. box office history. Wow. And it's my short end because, um, you know, I like a good Godzilla movie as much as the next person. Uh, I, Maybe a, more. I'm a, I'm, a fan, I'm a fan of the Godzillas, mm -hmm. but I haven't seen them all. And I don't, I don't seek them all out. My good friend Graham Skipper, he wrote a book about Godzilla. Oh, this wow. guy will see, has seen every Godzilla movie ever made. Damn. Um, this movie is, is a fucking great movie. Wow. It's just a great movie. 
And I might put it in like my top five for the year so far. I mean, I still haven't seen a lot of the Oscar contender movies that, that we're still waiting on, but I sort of feel like the uh, the cliche of a, of a Godzilla movie, or really any disaster movie, is usually like thinly drawn characters, maybe, maybe sometimes overstuffed with big stars, like I'm thinking Towering Inferno, or literally every, every Roland Emmerich movie ever made, including his Godzilla, the 90 or 98 Godzilla, mm. not a film that is near and dear to my heart. But this is Toho Studios, who mm. created Godzilla, yeah. and it is originally a, entitled Gojira. Well, I yes. mean, I think that that's, yeah. It's, yes, it's just, yeah, it's the Japanese pronunciation. It's a, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the correct pronunciation, yeah. and I'm, yeah. And this is made by them, and it's a period piece. It takes place right after World War II. Wow. Oh, so, timely. The, yeah. the, the original Godzilla uh, was also, it was made like 10 years after World War II, and if I'm not mistaken, they use Hiroshima victims, like stock footage of them, as people who are victims of Godzilla. Oh, wow. And it's not a subtle thing what the original Godzilla, the King of the Monsters, is about. You know, it's about Japan being, you know, obliterated by nuclear war. And this is not unlike that. It's dealing with the main character is a kamikaze pilot who kind of lacked the nerve to do what he needed to do in the war. And then going back to Tokyo after the war and sort of being shunned by a lot of people. And he meets a woman who found a baby, but he's not a couple with the woman and the baby isn't her baby. They're all like refugees and they're trying to put their lives back together. And, and this this is really dark. This is I would not expect this sort exactly. of like level of depth from Godzilla. Godzilla, yeah. I mean, yeah. And he gets because he was ex-military and he was a sharpshooter, he he gets a job on a boat that's taking care of mines that were laid in the water and they they take out this rickety shitty wooden boat that won't attract them because they're magnetic and when they find the mines they kind of clip it it rises to the surface and he fires this this gun at them until they rise and then of course there's godzilla and um this godzilla is absolutely horrifying Mm -hmm. and this godzilla and and and, i mean i've seen enough godzilla movies sometimes godzilla has comical sometimes godzilla has a conscience Mm -hmm. sometimes godzilla is making an environmental message Mm -hmm. sometimes godzilla is a little silly this godzilla is uh is horrifying is just a big horrifying awful monster that has like this he doesn't like breathe fire he has more like this heat ray that looks for all the world like a nuclear bomb went off and like destroys whole cities at a time to me it fires on the cylinders of the best of uh, disaster movies and it also you're going to find yourself weirdly emotionally tied into it and i'm just kind of saying like you know i i know that i'm always on here advocating for weird ass horror genre movies and stuff like that which are the things i love um this is a movie that i was told it was good and then i went and saw it and i'm like nobody said this was freaking great that's a lie my friend scott weinberg called me just to tell me it was that, freaking great that it was freaking great and i felt like is he building it up too much? Am I you know, like, you know, I'm trying to keep my expectations in check. You know, I liked the Gareth Edwards one that came out in what, what was it? 2013, 2014. Yeah. You know, like I have, I have liked a lot of these movies and the director is also a VFX supervisor and the VFX are like chef's kiss. I huh. don't know what the budget is on this. I think it's fair to say it was a lot less expensive than the Gareth Edwards Godzilla. And I think as far as kaiju movies go, which is that whole genre of massive monsters, you know, Ultraman or whatever that are that are, you know, crushing cities. Um, you know, uh, Guillermo del Toro made one with my, Pacific my childhood favorites. Yes, I, I, I love these movies. I think I think that they're fun, but I feel like it's interesting to see it done with maturity and style. The cinematography is freaking amazing. The acting is freaking amazing. Like, you know, you'll actually care about the characters. So is it, did you see it subtitled? Did you see it? Oh yeah, I did see it subtitled. Nice. Um, Yeah, yeah. And I saw kind of a late screening, which is hard for me as a parent, because I I know for a fact that I'm going to be awakened at six o'clock in the morning every day. Uh, But it was still totally held my attention, looked great, great acting. I'm overselling it at this point, but it's my short end. If you have a chance to see this in a theater, it's it's worth seeing in a theater with great sound. And I mean, like, what else goes on a big screen other than like a freaking kaiju wrecking a, a city done really well? 
Yeah. No, I, I think that there is something really fun about that. And I, I don't think it's just me hearkening back to my childhood of, of loving that sort of thing. I think it's really fun to watch stuff that, you know, get destroyed. Yeah. I think it's like it's, it's a it's a trope of movies, especially disaster movies. But oh, no, there's, I, I love watching movies where L.A. gets destroyed. And, and I'll say this even as a further endorsement, by the way, mm-hmm. I almost blackmailed Kays into coming to see it with me. And he kind of begrudgingly was like, okay, because he read some reviews of it. And when it was over, he was like, that was totally worth it. Kays liked it. Kays, who, let's just say, is uh, less likely to like something like this than me. <laughs> I totally follow that. And um, yeah, he can be a little curmudgeon sometimes. He, he can. Yeah, for sure. I know he's listening right now. He's in his car and he's screaming at the yeah, radio. Yeah, sh- we're getting fist shakes yeah. in the air. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, so what is your short end? My short end is Fargo season five. I've liked all the seasons of Fargo so far. Great show. I, I like the movie Fargo. I One of the best movies. One of the most perfect movies ever made by the Coens who have a record, a, a nearly unblemished record of making some of the best movies. Really, some some perfect movies. One of my, my, my favorite movie of all time, it's the Coen Brothers movie. So Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing. Yeah. Same here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one, of the, one of the few movies that we absolutely have exact yeah, alignment on. Pe- so. People who don't know us don't know that we... Don't always agree. Re- seldom agree. We seldom agree, yeah. actually. But uh, I Miller's can, Crossing, I can, I can stop The doing Shining, this right now and go watch Miller's Crossing right now. I, Miller's Crossing, if it ever comes on, and I've seen like a minute of it, it's like it is so difficult for me not to be sucked in, not to just movie. go and just watch. It. I, more anyway, than once, it's been on TV. Anyway, I, so, I, I, I could talk about Miller's Crossing all day, but but going Fargo, to Fargo season five. So uh, Noah Hawley, who is uh, back again. And it definitely has, it feels, it feels like Fargo. There's a little bit of weirdness, a little bit of offness, and it's uh, sort of an ennui of, you know, the mid, you know, the the northern Midwest, I guess I would call this sort of the Minnesota, North Dakota, you know, region. And yeah, yeah. and it's, uh, this time stars Juno Temple. Oh, she's great. And she is really great. And she does a spot on accent, spot on American accent, which is just like, I assume she's not American. I think she's, she's British, but uh, her Minnesotan accent is so great. It is so like spot on. I wonder so. if that's harder or easier for British. You know, like British people have an easier time doing like a Southern ac- an American Southern accent because they're both R-less. Mm. I wonder if Minnesota is especially hard for British people or if it's easier. Well, Juno Temple kills it. Uh, also in it is John Hamm. Always great. Uh, yes, always great. And he plays a real like evil scumbag. And in the first, I think maybe second, first, second, third time you see him, you get to see him uh, shirtless wearing uh, two nipple rings, which I don't know if that's really, you know, uh, John Hamm's signature look, but it seems like there's a, there's I mean, a I'm, lot I'm of... I'm not against it, but not, it's not especially <laughs> selling it for me. No, I was going to say, it's just, it's it feels a little like... John Hamm and nipple rings. It's just I I, I didn't picture you know yeah. Don Draper you know with the with the nipple rings. Pierced Ham. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> anyway, the show uh, again back. Uh, Dana Gonzalez is back. You know, mm-hmm. friend of the show. You know, uh, uh, DPing it, and it looks great. It's got the the right feels. My the jury for me is out because I I haven't seen enough of it yet. But I'm now I think two episodes in. And I think I'm all in. So I got I got to keep watching it. I, I want to no, see what it, happens it's next. It's a great series. Yeah. I, I love I, I have never watched Fargo and been like, meh. I think I think it's such a cool series. And I love how they took the idea of of the movie. And then like, I think there's only been like one reference to the movie in the whole series. And it yeah. was in the first season. I, I don't I hesitate to call it a reboot. It doesn't feel like a reboot at all to me. It feels like you know, just inspired by the same sort of feelings that yeah. the original movie did. And I, my hat's off to Noah Hawley. It, I got to imagine that's really freaking hard to do and to pull it off in the way that they have. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's great. And, and Dana, kind of Dana Gonzalez too. too. Yes. Five seasons now, five seasons of it. And I feel like they just kind of keep ratcheting up the stakes each time they keep getting, yeah. you know, there, there are moments in that show where I go, I don't know what's going to happen next. And I love that. I love going into shows that I have no idea what's going to happen next. So that's why we watch stuff. That, that is true. Uh, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. Jennifer Always Jason Leigh. great. Yeah, yeah, really good. So, okay. 
that's it for me. Ben, where can people track you down if uh, they want to connect with you outside of this podcast? Right here. It, at, I'm, I'm sitting in the in the theater at Hot Rod Cameras. We didn't even really talk about this, but this is your amazing viewing. Right behind the camera there is uh, is a great screen that you have. And uh, we watched, uh, what, what are we watching here? Ford V Ferrari? Mm, yeah, yeah. Ford Holy Ferrari. crap. Your sound, sound and everything in here. And, There's uh, a lot of speakers in here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I almost want to make another movie just so I can come in here and have a screening of it. Um, but the best place to find me is uh, benrock.com. That's my website. And uh, you can find all my social media stuff. You can read my bio. It's it's really compelling. And uh, <laughs> watch my reel. But but more importantly, like, you know, go on uh, Twitter. I don't... I, 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 it, Do people tweet at you a lot? Is that... A, I, I, they they I, X at you? I, 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 well, I, I, I still call it tweeting. But yeah, I mean, I... Uh, yeah, I, I've kind of... Do you I, threads... I, I am on Threads. I am on Blue Sky, but uh, but I'm still on Twitter, despite the fact that uh, Elon Musk seems to be uh, making it his life's mission to alienate massive swaths of people and sell them trucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, what it comes down to is uh, purely selfish. It took me years and years to get about twelve thousand followers on Twitter, mm-hmm. and I've only lost maybe two hundred. And I stay out of political Twitter, and mm-hmm. I think political Twitter is a cesspool, and I avoid it. But movie Twitter, not so bad. Hmm. Okay, gotcha. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? I mean, we're sitting here. Hot Rod Cameras. Uh, HotRodCameras.com. It's a wonderful retail shop in Burbank, California. I'm here about... You know, we stay, We still have the voiceover saying Hollywood, California. You know, beginning. to the greater world, this is Hollywood. Anything that is sort of like Los Angeles. I, I remember my first time coming to L.A. I have a cousin who lives in Tustin. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you're in L.A., right? And she was like, sort of. <laughs> yeah, I remember getting yeah. into an argument with someone who insisted they were working in downtown L.A. when they were working in Century City. And I'm like... That could not be less downtown L.A. if it tried. Well, Hollywood is quite literally just over the hill. There is Universal City. It's uh, it's right there. It's it's Hollywood. And Burbank is an interesting place. It's kind of like uh, an emotionally stunted sort of like 16 year old boy fantasy. There are comic book shops on every corner. There are gun shops all over there, the place. There's it's a, like there's a great horror uh, bookstore called Dark Delicacies mm, in oh, Burbank. Yeah. And uh, if, if you're visiting L.A. or if you live here. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. They've, it's basically nothing but great horror books, well curated selection. They have movies. They do lots of signings where you'll have like big horror writers or filmmakers will be there to autograph, uh, you know, old fashioned media that you would like. Yeah, physical buy media yeah, that you own. Physical shit. Anyway, Ilya. Okay, so continuing, you know, between diners and comic books and guns and classic cars, it's like this is like the 16 year old boy, and then movie studios everywhere. It's like you know, it's, it's pretty cool. Pretty, pretty interesting. Anyway, so so and so <laughs> finishing the answer of where can people find you? You can find me at Hot Ride Cameras, which is here in Burbank, which is a it's a lovely speakeasy. If you were not looking for us, you would not find us. There's a tiny little sign on the door, and actually we have a big party tomorrow, so uh, there's going to be 350 people here. So, so by the time you hear this, you will have missed the party. That's 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 true. Uh, ben, let's thank some people. This show was not possible if it was just you and me no. doing it, and. The idea behind this podcast was it was not supposed to ever be work. It was supposed to be fun. Yeah. So it was like, how do we, you know, separate ourselves from the rest of our lives, do this podcast? And we've been doing it now almost 10 years. I can't believe it's been almost 10 years. February, it's 10 years. I do so. feel fully 10 years older, though. Yeah, I, I, I know that. Feeling. Actually, I feel 10 years older than I did five years ago. But. Yeah, you know, I, it's probably feels more like 15 years. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, the, the point is, is that uh, this was always supposed to be fun. And the moment that it was going to get into work, that's when I was really concerned because yeah. it's like didn't want to have to do a lot of stuff, didn't want to have to spend a lot of time. But thankfully, we've got a great team. We've got people involved. And the changes that we've made to the format seem to be really resonating with people. I saw Daniel Stilling was commenting about how great, uh, how great, how much he loved watching the show on YouTube. Hey, Daniel. So, How's hey, it Daniel. Going? Yeah, if it's you're, good if, to see you. Yeah, if, you, if you're if you're watching this, thank you for for commenting. I appreciate that. Daniel, you should know I really don't like the video part. <laughs> really, you, you didn't express that to me. You, uh, yeah, I know. I, I I keep I keep it a secret. Wow. Oh, interesting. But, well, we you're, should... you're so much better than, at it than I am. So, <laughs> all right. So, Ben, why don't you take us out? Well, first we should thank some people because we. Oh yeah, you're right. We didn't thank them. Okay, so, so I. Let's, I Let's, let's first let's uh, actually thank them. Yeah, let's thank Alana Cody. Just this morning, you and I conducted an amazing interview, like with with just a super engaging DP. Cannot wait to share this. With I them. wanted to make that my short end, but I had to be, have very strong self control to not talk about that screening, to not talk about yeah. that movie. But we'll, we'll talk when, when we do that episode. We'll talk about the screening. 
So we should thank Ben Katz, who now also has the unenviable position of having to look at my freaking face. I'm pretty sure he just does the auto edit button and he doesn't look at you auto at all. Edit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, just AI that shit. <laughs> uh, but no, <laughs> ben, ben, who really works his ass off making this sound good and making us not sound like idiots. Uh, we, we appreciate you. And as always, Kay Zalatrachi, who, who composed every scrap of music that you've heard on this show. And uh, uh, again, uh, supposedly we have some more music coming our way. I don't know. Ben called them curmudgeonly earlier in this episode, so maybe not now. So. You called oh, them don't do, I guess it was me. Yikes. I said <laughs> that he is less uh, forgiving of movies than I am. That's all I said. <laughs> I, and, I and, then, I, and then he was shaking his fist at us. Yeah, yeah. yeah so no, okay. he's shaking his fist at you. Okay, you, shaking, you're, yeah, I'm you're, the one who said curmudgeonly. You're, you're in hot water. <laughs> anyway, but uh, uh, check out Kay's. Kay's is, uh, I actually just recommended Kay's for a job this week hmm. doing color correction. Uh, Kay's is a composer, but he also does color correction. He also does visual effects. And he also directs. Yeah. What it, What the hell? Yeah, that's it's really crazy. He's slowly replacing us all. Uh, anyway, but check him out at musicbyks.com. Please hire him to compose a score for you or color correct your movie or do visual effects or direct your next thing or all of those things. All right. So now that we've thanked some people, Ben, take us out. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Thanks for, for tuning, tuning in, in, everyone. Because all that tuning that people do these days. Yeah, yes. on, on, your, uh, on, on your dial. Yes, all the dialing. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.